Yesterday at our uh, prophecy conference at Baker Creek Bible Church, my colleague, my teaching colleague, Paul Pierce, was telling me that uh, when he was six years old, a missionary in Brazil speaking at his church, and Brother Paulson, do you remember what your topic was that day? It was. It was a prophetic text, a prophetic message, and six-year-old Paul, as a response to that message, asked Jesus Christ to become his Savior from sin. Paul went on to become a pastor, most recently in Olympia, Washington, and a few years ago, my boss, our North American director, Steve Herzig, told me, he said, Pat, there's a pastor up in Olympia, Washington, and he just loves the Jewish people and strongly supports Israel, and I think he'd make a great church ministries representative. Why don't you start working on him? So a couple of times a year, I'd call Paul and found that indeed he was a man who had a heart for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel, and he said, Pat, someday I'd like to be doing just what you're doing, but God's not through with me here yet. And I still remember one day that uh, not only did Paul call, but Carolyn called. We were on a conference call, and we talked for over an hour just answering questions about what life and ministry would be like at the Friends of Israel. And yet, there was still no response. We kept praying, and then... A year and a half went by, and Paul applied. Said, God is calling me to the friends of Israel. And we had the joy of uh, ministering with him yesterday, and Brother Paulson, uh, you did well. Uh, he is uh, going to be a wonderful uh, representative for the friends of Israel. And one of the things that's blessed me is that Paul is not just getting into churches uh, and teaching and into conferences and speaking, but... Paul is already getting involved in Jewish people's lives. And uh, they are impacting uh, people, Jewish people, with the love of the Messiah. And that's what we want our workers to be doing. And so thank God for uh, your ministry, Brother Paulson, and for Paul and Carolyn Pierce, as they are uh, somewhat new with the Friends of Israel. There is a growing alarm among those who are Jewish and among those who are friends of the state of Israel as to Israel's ability to survive as a nation. Now, there are some uh, internal threats that Israel uh, is facing, and I think I just turned that off. <coughs> okay. Try. There we go. <coughs> Let's look at some of those internal threats. The BDS movement. You all know what that is? Boycott, divest, sanction. It's an attempt to destroy Israel economically. And uh, it is a worldwide movement. It's had some success. Uh, intifadas, uprisings within by the Arab population. Uh, there's been some concern that the Arabs might eventually outnumber the Jews in Israel, and Israel being a democracy, uh, they could be outvoted by their Arab neighbors. But uh, with the immigration that is taking place of Jews returning to Israel, that problem has been taken care of for the time being. 
And then, of course, Israel has terrorists within her own borders. But I want to spend more time on <coughs> external threats, but let me just share one more internal threat that Israel is facing. As a country, we are more divided politically in America than any time since the Civil War. <coughs> and we have two major political parties. They can't agree on a thing. In Israel, there are 32 or 33 political parties. And the old saying is, if you get two rabbis in the same room, you have at least three opinions. <laughs> and Jewish people have strong opinions. And can you imagine 32 or 33 political factions coming together? And it can be tough just getting a coalition to govern, but God has been good and uh, it has happened. But let me talk about some of the external threats. That's what we want to focus on. We're going to talk about Hamas. Mr. Abbas, who is the leader of Hamas, just stood before the United Nations a week ago praising the terrorists who had just killed some Israelis, and the United Nations gave him a standing ovation. Can you believe that? Hamas, a terrorist group. Israel was told, if you want peace, give away land. So they gave Gaza Strip to the Palestinians. They elected Hamas, and Hamas has used that strip of land to send rockets into Israel, hundreds and thousands of rockets indiscriminately, and uh, it is, is a major problem. Uh, there is Fatah, and uh, <coughs> I'm going to come back and talk about Fatah in a minute. We'll just, we'll just pass on Fatah because we don't hear much about them, but you need to know a little bit about them. And then, of course, there is uh, Hezbollah. Hezbollah has taken over Lebanon. Lebanon used to be a nice country where people used to like to go on vacation. It was considered a quote-unquote Christian nation. And then Hezbollah came in, has taken over uh, Lebanon, uh, they pretty much run Lebanon, and uh, they are the big concern that Israel has right now. Today, as I speak to you, Hezbollah has about 200,000 rockets and missiles aimed at Israel. And uh, it's a very dangerous situation uh, right on Israel's border, and Hezbollah is threatening, has been threatening to attack. And then, of course, we all know what's going on in Syria, and uh, we don't know the outcome yet, but up until the recent uh, battles in Syria, Syria was one of the, uh, thank you so much, one of the leading sponsors of terrorism there. And uh, then there is Iran. Iran, of course, uh, is working feverishly on nuclear weapons, and their plan is, is to get those weapons and use them to destroy Israel. Stay. When uh, Ruth and I moved to Phoenix uh, about 12 years ago, we wanted to get to know Jewish people. We wanted to get involved in the Jewish community and uh, let them know of our love for them, of Messiah's love for them, and of our support for Israel, and I was reading through the Jewish news of Phoenix, and uh, there was an ad, and it talked about the Israel Action Committee meeting that was uh, going to be meeting at a uh, temple, Temple Beth El in Phoenix, and so I thought I'd call, and I got a hold of this lady, and I said, can you tell me a little bit about your organization, and she said, well, we're a, we're a pro-Israel uh, uh, 
advocacy group, and she said, we do all we can to, to help Israel, support Israel. And I said, well, I'm interested in that. I said, you know, my, my wife and I are Bible-believing Christians, and uh, we serve with an organization called the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And I was just wondering, could we attend one of these meetings? She said, I don't know. She said, why don't you call my husband tonight and talk to him? So I did. I called him. His name was Hank, very nice man. And he said, Patrick, he said, you are more than welcome to come to this meeting. We are thrilled to hear of Christians who are supporting Israel. He said, in fact, please stay afterwards because I would like to meet you and talk to you, talk to you. Well, at that meeting, there was a man that I met. He's become a good friend. His name is Dr. Carl Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg has got a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. He probably knows more about Islam than anybody I know. I've used him as a speaker at some of our Thank God for Israel events. And Dr. Goldberg stood and said, when we look at Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran, he said, there may not be an Israel in 10 years. There may not be an Israel in 10 years. Now, if you think that's, you know, kind of an extreme remark, um, show you a headline. The Israeli people are facing the threat of a nuclear holocaust. Newt Gingrich. Gingrich went on to say that both America and Israel greatly underestimated the danger that a nuclear Iran poses to Israel. And then he said this. Gingrich said, there may not be an Israel in five Now, I need to be fair and balanced. If I quote from a former speaker from one side of the aisle, I need to quote from a former speaker from the other side of the aisle. And when Nancy Pelosi was elected speaker, she was determined to go to the Middle East. And the White House asked her not to go, and the State Department asked her not to go, but she was determined to go. And she went and met with the leaders of countries that sponsor terrorism. She heard their side of things, their viewpoint. And then she stood before the microphones and the cameras, and she said, after meeting with the leader of Syria, this cruel, diabolical monster, after meeting with him, she said, I'm convinced that peace will come through Damascus. End of quote. One of my Jewish friends said, does she not realize that Syria at that time was home to 10 different terrorist organizations, each one bent on Israel's destruction. This morning, and please forgive me because when I finish today, I have to leave. I've got a plane to catch in Seattle. And so I'm going to have to just run when I get done. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the whole sermon, though. Don't you worry. We'll get the whole thing. Uh, this morning, I want to speak to you about Israel's peril. And I think before we're through, you are going to realize that her peril is great. But then we're going to flip the coin. Because as great as is her peril, far greater is her protector. Far greater is Israel's protector. Let's begin with Israel's peril. The current threat that Israel faces is Islamic fascism. Islamic fascism. Now, we talked about Hamas that now controls the Gaza Strip. They, 
they again send all of these rockets indiscriminately into to Israel. And Hamas has a charter. And in their charter, this is what it says. Article 6 of their charter says that Hamas strives to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine. In other words, it's to be Islamic. There, there's no room for the Jews or Christians. Hamas has a slogan, uh, we might call it a purpose or mission statement, and it's, it goes like this. I don't know if it's up there or not. Here it is. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, killing the Jews, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees. The stones and trees will say, oh, Muslims, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. That is who Israel is trying to make peace with, Hamas. And Hamas has no desire for peace, only the eradication of Israel. I told you we'd speak about Fatah. Fatah, for, for years, and Fatah and, and, and Hamas have kind of come together again, but for years our State Department had been telling us that, you know, Fatah is a, a moderate terrorist organization. We can work with them. Anybody here know what an oxymoron is? <laughs> Would someone please explain to me what is a moderate terrorist? I, I've never been able to quite understand that. But Fatah has a constitution. And in their constitution, Article 4, it says this. The Palestinian struggle is part and parcel of the worldwide struggle, not just about Israel, but it's a worldwide struggle against Zionism, colonialism, and international imperialism. Stop right there. Back up a little bit. Code words. Zionism. It's a worldwide struggle against Zionism. What is Zionism? Well, if you believe <coughs> excuse me, that the Jewish people have the right to return and live in their ancient God-given homeland, defend themselves therein, you are a Zionist. The Friends of Israel is a Christian Zionist organization. But their battle is not just against Zionism. They go on to mention colonialism and international imperialism. <coughs> Anybody here lived through the Cold War? Familiar with those terms? Who are they talking about? They're talking about the big Satan, the United States of America. Israel's the little Satan. We're the big Satan. They want to destroy us too. Their goals, the complete liberation of Palestine and eradication of Zionist economic, political, military, and cultural existence. Pretty much covers it, doesn't it? The eradication of anything Jewish. <coughs> now, these are moderate terrorists, so how might they accomplish this? Article 17, their methods. Armed public revolution is the inevitable method to liberating Palestine. That is what Israel is facing today. Look at this. Fatah says, and this struggle will not cease unless the Zionist state is demolished and Palestine is completely liberated. How do you make peace with people holding those views? Now, that's the current threat. Incidentally, there are some Americans who say, well, you know, that's Israel's problem. No. There's a saying in the Islamic world that says, first, first we are going to kill the 
Saturday people, and then we will get the Sunday people. Think about that one. <coughs> but according to the Bible, it's going to get worse. The current threat, Islamic fascism. But according to the Bible, a day is coming. Ezekiel looked down the long quarters of the future, and he sees the Jewish people being brought to life, Ezekiel 37. In chapters 38 and 39, they're reestablished. The nation has been reborn. And he sees the Russians and a number of Islamic nations coming together, <coughs> and they're going to invade Israel. What's their purpose? The destruction of Israel. It's interesting when you look at the list of Islamic nations mentioned that are going to join with Russia, who, by the way, today is building all kinds of relationships with these Arab nations. Don't have time to talk about that. <coughs> but at the head of the list is Persia. Anybody know who Persia is today? Iran. Iran. Iran is the leading uh, Islamic nation. People ask, well, when do you think this invasion is going to happen? Can I tell you something? I think the stage is set right now. Putin is in Syria. He's got a foothold. He's making strategic alliances with Iran and other Islamic nations. And yet, as Ezekiel describes when this battle will take place, he says it's going to take place when Israel is at rest, when Israel is at peace, when her walls are down. Uh, she'll be caught off guard. Now, Israel was reborn in 1948, and May the 14th, May the 15th, you know what happened? Five Arab nations attacked. Israel has not known a moment's peace since. She has been under attack ever since. So when is Israel going to be at peace? Well, you'll remember that the prophet Daniel tells us that the day is coming in which a world ruler will arise and he will sign a strategic peace treaty with Israel and her Arab neighbors. And this peace treaty will be for how long, folks? Seven years. And during the first three and a half years, the Antichrist, the world leader, he promises to be Israel's protector or peace partner. And he will be for the first three and a half years. And then Israel's protector becomes Israel's persecutor for the last three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation period. So during the first three and a half years, Israel is at peace. Antichrist guarantees her security. She trusts him. She signs treaties. She lets down her guard. She lets her defenses go. And at that point, Russia says, sitting duck, a sitting duck. And she and the Arabs will attempt to destroy Israel. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. There's a culminating threat. At the end of those seven years, tribulation, we are told that Zechariah chapter 14, that all nations will gather together against Jerusalem, seeking Jerusalem's destruction. <clears throat> Sometimes people say, well, do you think the United States is in prophecy? 
Zechariah 14 says what? All nations. He's there. Would you not agree that with the current threat and the coming threat and the culminating threat that Israel is in great peril? In fact, from the human perspective, she shouldn't have a chance. It's a David and Goliath situation all over again. Now let's flip the coin. This is where it gets good. Israel's protector. God has made certain promises to Israel. The first one is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. I should warn you, last time I preached this message took me 45 minutes. I'm going to do it in less time today if I can. Genesis 13 beginning with verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Uh, Look every direction, for all the land that you see I will give to you, and not just to you, and to your offspring, for how long? Forever, forever. God says, look in every direction, all that land, I'm giving it, Abraham, I'm giving it to you, I'm giving it to your descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and down the line, and I'm going to give it to you forever. Look at chapter 17 and verse 8. And he said, I'm sorry, 17 verse 8, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's one of the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to give Israel the land, the promised land, as an everlasting possession. Now, there's something you should know about that covenant. It is unconditional. In fact, when God made this covenant with Abraham, do you know what he was doing? What Abraham was doing? He was sleeping. God put him into a deep sleep. How would you like to be making a real estate transaction and the realtor was dictating the terms and you're asleep? Well, fortunately for Abram, God is benevolent. What a deal. What a deal God gave him. All that land is yours. It's yours forever. There were no conditions. Now, there's another covenant in the Bible that people don't even seem to be aware of. It's called the Davidic Covenant. One lady here knows about it. We talked about it this morning. Please turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. As you're turning there, let me try to explain to you the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. Most biblical covenants are unconditional, but there are those that have conditions. Let's suppose that uh, you have a daughter. I I don't speak in terms of sons because I have daughters. And uh, let's suppose that your daughter is graduating from high school. And on the day of her graduation, you have a a wonderful gift. She's going to be commuting to college, and you want her to have reliable transportation. So you call her down from her bedroom, and 
and say, look out in the driveway, there's your graduation gift. And she looks out the window and there is a brand new Ford Mustang convertible. And you say to her, it's yours. In fact, look at here, look on the title. Right after dad's name is your name, you own this car. It belongs to you. However, however, if you want to drive the car, if you want dad to keep the oil changed and the tires rotated and you want get dad to pay the insurance and so forth, there are three conditions you must meet. Number one, you must keep your grades up. You're going off to college. It's costing us a lot of money. We're not, you know, we're not expecting you to goof off. We're expecting you to learn, to study, to prepare for life. You've got to keep your grades up. Number two, you must keep curfew. We've heard about these party schools, and we're not sending you off to party. We're sending you off to, to, to study, and you must keep curfew. You must come in at a certain time and keep curfew. Condition number three, you can only date boys that I, your dad, approve of. Now, if you meet those three conditions, you can drive the car, and I'll pay the insurance and all that stuff. However, you break those conditions, the car's still yours. You just can't enjoy it. I'll jack it up and take tires off. I'll drain the oil out. I mean, you're not going to be able to drive it. Israel, the land is yours forever. But if you want to live in the land, be blessed in the land, enjoy the fruit of the land, here are some stipulations. <coughs> Israel lost the blessings. She never lost the land. She was removed from the land, but it was still her land. God never took it away from her. Now that brings us to the Davidic covenant, which is also an unconditional covenant, and let's pick it up in uh, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist begins, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now please note that word, faithfulness. You might underline that. That is the theme of Psalm 89, God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Aren't you glad that God is faithful to you even though you're not always faithful to him? Verse 2, for I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish, there it is again, your faithfulness. See, it was never about Israel's faithfulness to God. It's always about God's faithfulness to Israel. Verses 3 and 4. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Wow, what a promise. What a covenant God just made with David that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne. Now I know what you're thinking. But what if Israel turns their back on God? What if Israel runs off and worships false idols and doesn't follow the, the teachings of the Torah? What if Israel turns their back on God and walks away? Is God still obligated to the promise, to the covenant? I think God knew you were going to ask that question because he answers it. Go down with me to uh, verse uh, 30. 
If his children, his being David's children, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, stop right there. Look at me. Anybody here read the Old Testament? Do you know anything about David's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons? It seems to me that they were almost, in a, I mean, there, there are a couple of bright bulbs there, but by and large, it seems like they're in a competition to see who can be the most evil, the most wicked, the most reprobate, and finally you get to Manasseh, the worst of all. So we know what Israel did. They, uh, they did forsake God's law. They did not walk according to his rules. They did violate his statutes. They did not keep his commandments. Then, then what's God going to do? Next verse, verse 32. Then God says, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but a little word that means so much. The word of contrast, your translation may say, nevertheless. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Wow! It's not about Israel's faithfulness. It's about God's. God says, Israel, I will chasten you. I will discipline you. But I will never destroy you. He goes on to say, I'll not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. During the last hour, we talked about replacement theology. And cardinal for replacement theology is that God has violated his covenant and has taken back the word that has gone out of his lips to Israel. He's broken his covenant with Israel according to replacement theology. Verse 35, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. I might mention they are Jewish offspring. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the sky. It's amazing to me that those who are teaching Israel has lost her elect position, that Israel is not eternally secure, that is coming from the reform camp. These people are supposed to be Calvinist. Now, do the prophets agree? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And notice the 11th verse. God speaking to Israel. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I forgot to advance my slide. Let me just do that here. There we go. The prophetic confirmation. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I've scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. What's God saying? He's saying... Other nations I will destroy. You ever wondered about the Hittites, the Perizzites, all those otherites? They just vanish. They're gone. 
Other nations I'll destroy, but Israel, I'll never destroy you. You're my people. Oh, I'll, I'll discipline you, but I'll never destroy you. Look at uh, chapter 31, just over a page. Chapter 31, beginning with verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Question time. Is the sun still shining? Well, I don't know about in Seattle, but it does in Phoenix. We have sunshine 350 days out of the year, I think. It's, it's usually there, and let me tell you, it's shining. How about the moon? Is the moon still out there at night? Is the fixed order of things still in place? How about the tides? Are they still? Then God says, unless all those things disappear, Israel can't disappear. Let me ask another question. You know, we've really advanced. I mean, we're sending satellites. Have we been able to measure the heavens? How about the depths of the earth? In fact, what are we learning as we explore the heavens? Way more vast than we ever imagined. God says, unless you can measure the heavens and plunge to the depths, Israel hasn't got a thing to worry about. In the New Testament, Paul talks in Romans 11, if you'll turn there, Romans 11, verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Is God through with the Jew? No. Oh, there, there's a blindness, but notice it's partial. It's temporary. Try to share the gospel with a Jewish friend, and you'll realize there's a blindness an inability to perceive spiritual truth often. I was meeting with a Jewish friend. He had cancer, and he would come to Phoenix for blood tests, and I would meet him at the hospital and would sit with him as he waited the results of the blood test. We'd often go and have breakfast in between, and the guy was brilliant. came from Hollywood. And I tried to share with him God's simple plan of salvation. And he couldn't comprehend what I was talking about. Brilliant man. But he couldn't understand the ABCs of salvation. It was just like he was blind. Well, did the prophets confirm this? Uh, there are, let, me, let me share with you how this is going to work out uh, Prophetically. Talk about that Ezekiel 37-38 passage. Current threat, Islamic fascism. The coming threat, the next thing Israel will face, 
During the tribulation, probably early on in the tribulation, something more toward the midpoint, this Russian Islamic invasion, what's going to happen? Well, Russia and these Islamic nations are going to get as far as the mountains of Israel and they're going to meet the God of Israel. What's just happened? And by the way, God's going to decimate them. Not only are the, Ezekiel says, not only are the armies that come against Israel going to be destroyed, God's going to send judgment upon the nations from which those armies came. What's just happened? The Bible says that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Don't mess with Israel because when you do, you are messing with those who are most important to God. We have been blessed with ten grandchildren. I don't know why. I mean, I I love my daughters, and when they were born, it was exciting, but uh, for some reason, I... I don't know, it didn't, didn't impact me that greatly. I, we're having kids, great. But then the grandkids started coming. And my first grandchild, her name is Bailey. She's a freshman in college this year. And when Bailey was born, uh, it was, she had to stay in the hospital a couple extra days. And mom and dad were exhausted. And Ruth and I were so excited. And we happened to live in the same town. And, and man, we... we we made up excuses to go by our daughter's house to see our grandchild. I mean, we were there every day. And they, Larry and Rachel, were exhausted. And so I came up with this brilliant idea. I said, tell you what. I said, tonight, tonight I'm going to come over, and you bring the bassinet, and, and you bring little Bailey out, and I'm going to sleep on the couch, and you put that right next to the couch. You two go and get a good night's sleep, and I'll take care of the baby. Everybody thought that was a great idea. I arrive probably, uh, you know, 7 o'clock in the evening, and I bring the baby out. She's asleep. They go into the room. I lay down on the couch. About an hour later, the baby began to cry. I suddenly realized I didn't have any idea what to do next. <laughs> so I took that little girl. I picked her up. I put her against my chest, and I laid back down on the couch. And we spent most of the night that way. You talk about bonding. Don't mess with my Bailey. You mess with my Bailey, you're messing with me. Same with all of my grandkids. Don't mess with... That's how God feels about Israel. Don't mess with Israel. And then in Zechariah chapter 14, it really gets bad. All nations come against Israel. I mean, Russia and the Islamic, I mean, that's bad enough. But all nations, superpowers, turn to Zechariah 14. Zechariah chapter 14. In verse 2 we read, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now, wait a minute. I thought God was on Israel's side. What's he doing gathering these nations to battle against? He's just telling us he's orchestrating it. He's in charge of what's about to happen. And the city of Jerusalem shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So here it looks like Israel's about to be eradicated. Hitler's final solution is about to be imposed upon Israel. 
Lights out. Might as well go home. Oh, next verse. Then. Just when it appears hopeless. Then. The Lord shall go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. You want to know the outcome? Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. When you compare Zechariah 14 with Revelation 19, you realize that the one who is coming to defend and destroy Israel's enemies and to rescue Israel is none other than Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. I mentioned in the prophecy conference yesterday that when Jesus returns, he's coming on two rescue missions. First of all, he's coming before the tribulation to rescue his bride from the coming wrath. Christ will not permit his bride to go through the wrath of God. And then he comes at the end of the tribulation on another rescue mission, this time to rescue Israel from the nations. And not only will there be physical rescue, there will also be spiritual rescue. Because as he comes, Zechariah tells us in chapter 12 and verse 10, they will see the one they have pierced. They'll recognize him. They'll know who he is. And they will mourn and grieve as they believe. And it's at that point, all Israel will be saved. Without question, Israel is in the most perilous situation of her modern existence. She faces the current threat of Islamic fascism, the coming threat of a Russian-Islamic coalition, and that culminating threat of international forces. But without question, Israel will survive. She'll be severely wounded. Greatly damaged, about two-thirds of the Jewish people will die during the tribulation period. But Israel will survive because, first of all, she has a divine protector. Secondly, because she has durable promises. All of God's promises are durable. And thirdly, there are definite prophecies that confirm that Israel will be delivered. She will survive. Let me just quickly give you some things that you can do for Israel, for the Jewish people. Number one, bless them. By the way, do you know, God says if you bless Israel, he'll bless you. But if you curse Israel, he'll curse you. I believe that one of the reasons the United States has been blessed beyond all other nations is because we have chosen as a nation to bless Israel. And the moment we quit blessing Israel, look out. Bless the Jewish people. I mentioned earlier, Ruth and I have the greatest job in the world because um, we spend a lot of time just blessing Jewish people. They're not, you see, they're not used to that from Christians. Do you know that Jewish people think you don't like them? Do you know that Jewish people think you 
Think of them as Christ killers. Do you know that many Jewish people are afraid to darken the door of a Christian church? But when you begin to bless them and love them, not just saying it, but doing it, it's amazing how they'll respond. Secondly, pray for the peace and protection of Israel. She is under attack. We're told in Psalm 122.6 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for her protection. Pray for her prime minister. Pray for her people that God will lift the veil and they'll understand that Jesus came for them, that according to Isaiah 53, he died for their sins. Pray for them. And stand up for and with Israel. When Ruth and I attended that very first Israel Action Committee meeting at Temple Bethel in Phoenix, we were the only non-Jewish people there. Two Bible-believing Christians and about 40 Jewish people. Apparently the word was out that we were coming because a man stood at the end and I'll never forget what he said. As we were talking that night about the dangers that Israel was facing, this man stood at the end and he said, when you're in the middle of the lake and your boat is about to sink, you can't be too fussy about who throws you a lifeline. And then he pointed at us and he said, and you evangelical, are the only ones that care. You're the only ones that care. Do you know what Jewish people need from you? They need to know that you care. I often tell people who ask me, how do you reach Jewish people? I'll tell them, well, first of all, don't be too aggressive. If you meet a Jewish person and immediately talk to them about Jesus, you've just made an enemy. And a brick wall will go up and it'll never come down. But if you'll love them, build a relationship with them, build a friendship with them, care for them, do you know what Ruth and I have found? About 90% of the time they come to us and ask us why we love them. And then we get to tell them about our best friend. By the way, the one thing the rabbis warn about, they, they warn them, watch out for these evangelicals they are going to try to proselytize you. But you see, when you love them and bless them and care for them sincerely, then they start asking you the questions. You're not proselytizing. You're just answering their questions. I do this with a rabbi all the time. <laughs> it's been a delight to be with you. Ruth and I pray before we go to a new church Lord, if nothing else happens, help us to leave a burden with the people for the Jewish people. Will you love them? Will you reach out to them? Will you pray for them and pray for Israel and stand with Israel in these difficult days? Father, it is so good to be here at First Baptist, and I pray that you will give this congregation a, an understanding and a love for the Jewish people.
and for the nation of Israel. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.